It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello. And welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show. We broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and are syndicated on the Community Radio Network. You may download our podcasts from the internet at either 3cr.org.au or bze.org.au or using any common podcasting app. My name is Nils, and our co-host today is Michael. How are you, Michael? Excellent, thanks. And would you like to introduce today's guest? Of course. Today we have Glenn Morris as our guest. Glenn is Vice President of the Australian Solar Council and also runs the renewable energy company SolarQuip. Mr Morris is a presenter and trainer within the solar photovoltaics field and also offers professional development for solar workers. Glenn and his software company Solaris developed the first online solar design software customised for Australian conditions. Furthermore, as principal of SolarQuip, Glenn services customers with high-quality clean energy solutions. Glenn Morris is a return guest of Beyond Zero, and the topic of today's show is the upcoming Solar 2015 conference. Solar 2015 is the year's annual solar expo, hosted by the Australian Solar Council. The Solar 2015 Exhibition and Conference will take place at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, May 13 and May 14. The website for the Solar 2015 Conference is www.solar2015.com.au and we'll give you that again at the end. Glenn joins us by phone today. How are you, Glenn? Uh, Very good, thank you. Great, thanks for joining us. It's always instructive and, and educational for us and our listeners to start these interviews with just a, a potted autobiography of, of the journey that brought you to where you are in renewable energy and climate solutions. So would you be kind enough to do that for us? Certainly. You know, it's uh, quite funny when I think back on my life how I ended up where I am. I'm the accidental renewable energy expert, really through a bunch of lucky events, opportunities and necessities. I, I started off my career as an electronics technician, so I worked for New Zealand telegraph and data. So I understood how electronics worked, how to make things. Then decades later, I moved to Australia and foolishly bought a little property out in the bush. It was formerly owned by Men at Work, so it's um, their little bush getaway up in the mountains behind Sydney. And uh, as many people do when buying a house, they give it less thought than a new pair of shoes. I didn't even notice that it didn't have grid power. The, I think the real estate agent did point that out, but I was a bit over, overwhelmed by how wonderful it was being out in the bush. So that was my introduction to sort of living off-grid, was to have a generator that cost a fortune to run. So I had this uh, diesel generator clunking away every time I wanted to turn the light on, costing about two or $300 a week in diesel. Wow. So that's what got me thinking that there's got to be a better way. And I thought back to my former career in electronics and thought, well, why don't I build something out of solar panels and see if I can make something that will actually generate free energy uh, at a lower cost. So that's how I got started. And that was in the early days, wasn't it, when, when that, those sort of things were way more expensive than now? Indeed. That was 1991. 
you know, the industry was certainly in its infancy. There was a solar industry, a renewable and off-grid industry back then, but it was very small. There was no on-grid market at all. And so I started by building my own system, which is, was pretty pretty uh, homemade back then. But, uh, you know, bit by bit, people wanted it, the next-door neighbour wanted one, and off we went. So that's how I got into designing and building renewable energy systems without a necessity to provide myself with one. Because today is International Workers' Day, an appropriate first question is to ask about employment opportunities in green-collar jobs. So, Glenn, as a trainer in the solar photovoltaics field, how optimistic should high school leavers feel about green-collar jobs in Australia? Well, I don't have any data at my fingertips to give you numbers, but uh, I, I can, uh, you know, I have actually looked at them in the past, and, and the, the growth predictions for green collar jobs is very, very promising. I mean, the, the, the really attractive thing about green collar jobs is they predominantly are local businesses producing local products uh, that service lo- local needs. So it's a it's a virtuous circle. It's not like you know you're digging some up and out something out of the ground and sending it overseas, and that's the last you see of it. So in the you know my sort of specific industry, the renewable energy industry, we've seen a large increase in the amount of particularly photovoltaic systems being installed. That employs a lot of electricians. It also employs a lot of people designing and selling those systems, probably more than it employs actually installing them. And then there's all the people who service that industry, uh, whether it's from call centres, product suppliers technical assistance, people who are just labourers on site even, all of that is part of a larger, you know, green job uh, industry. And it's got an enormous potential. I'm, you know, I'm I'm very upbeat about it because when you look at all the predictions about energy, you might be a bit gloomy about Australia's target at the moment. But Mm. we know that there is only one source of energy in the solar system, that is the sun. Eventually, um, we will be sourcing all our energy one way or another, through renewables, because it will be the lowest cost, obvious choice. And that will be in our lifetime. We're not talking eons away. And with that sort of um, promise, green jobs will be the norm. People producing all sorts of products, whether it's energy efficiency, whether it's energy generation, it will be all part of the market to uh, maintain our life as we know it. The Australian Solar Council has led an important campaign to save the mandatory renewable energy target in its current form. Perhaps you could give us an update on the Save Solar campaign and tell us why the mandatory renewable energy target works? Okay, well, ironically, it actually came into place long ago, 2001, under a coalition government. Um, We might think the current government is, um, federal government is rather hostile towards it, but actually it was uh, John Howard um, his government in 2001 instigated through a white paper the beginnings of the renewable energy target. It was a very small target back then. I think it was only like 1% or 2%, but it was a, it was a beginning. It, it then had bipartisan support through various changes of government and was seen as a very positive move because it wasn't a cost to government. The renewable energy car, um, target cost government nothing because it's basically regulation that requires a certain percentage of energy sold by energy retailers to come from renewable sources. So it's a rule, not a source of funds. And as a result, those, uh, that, that energy has to come from somewhere, so it encourages the renewable energy industry to produce it. So that's been um, the history behind the RET. But what we've seen you know, under the current federal government, uh, a rather hostile attitude towards uh, renewable energy in general, and uh, particularly uh, the renewable energy target. 
and you know, uh, trying to scale back a target which has had bipartisan support for over a decade and which many um, you know, large players in the industry and overseas investors have come to Australia to participate in under the, the concept that the program actually went out to 2030 at a certain growth rate, uh, then to suddenly start fiddling with it uh, has been really disastrous. Uh, we've seen a massive reduction in large-scale solar, virtually killed large-scale renewable energy projects in Australia in the last 12 months. The small-scale program, you know, the mums and dads who put solar panels on their roofs, that's still quite strong. But it, you know, it would be adversely affected. Uh, were there any tinkering with the with the actual target, and therefore reduction in the the value of the um, certificates generated? So where we are, we now well, we're still in limbo. And maybe some say that it suits the government. Uh, the longer it stays in limbo, no decision about the review um, will mean that there's loss of confidence and less uh, renewable energy being installed. You know, we're still pushing for a, a, a strong target. You know, the original uh, 41 gigawatt hours um, by 2030 is still the you know, target we'd like to see. Um, uh, hopefully the players in Parliament don't fold to, to government pressure and go for a, a, you know, a, a much smaller target. Thanks for that. And it's worth remembering, I think, that um, even the government's own stacked committee um, headed by climate change deniers and, and coal industry leaders... Uh, still came out and said that the RET was working and was reducing, in addition, reducing costs for consumers. Moving now, yeah, yeah. Glenn, to the um, the Solar Expo that I mentioned at the opening, can you just briefly tell us the history of the annual Solar Expo hosted by the Australian Solar Council and how it's evolved since that start? Well, it's easy for me to remember where we're up to with it because it started when I was born, in 1961. Really? Um, it, it astounds some people that the Australian Solar Council, which has had various names in its previous history, but it's still the same organisation that started off as ANZES, Australian New Zealand Solar Energy Society. New Zealand left, became ours, Australian Solar Energy Society, and then we rebranded. Too much emphasis on the word society to the Solar Council. started in 1961. It was predominantly for most of its early life, a academic-only conference. It now has become much more focused on industry, so we still encourage and support um, academia in our programs. So it's the 54th conference. Uh, there's a bit of history. That's fantastic. The Expo this year expects, if I'm right, something like 4,500 attendees. What sort of exhibits can those attendees expect to see? Yes, well, I mean, the, the really attractive thing about coming to the Solar 2015 conference uh, and exhibition is that it is free. So we get a huge uh, number of, uh, you know, the general public who just want to learn more about, you know, the renewable energy area and particularly solar turning up. They get to see uh, in the industry stream uh, examples of quality products, innovative solutions. They get to talk to people about them, share their ideas. Often it's a, more than just a marketplace, it's actually a, a place to um, share and um, enlarge one's understanding of what, what uh, is out there. But also we have a policy streams as well where we have people you know, like uh, uh, you know, you know, government people like Mark Butler and former opposition leaders like John Hewson talking about why solar makes good political sense. Um, and then we've got technical people talking about particular, uh, specific aspects of renewables and also the market as well. Okay. What sort of audience are you typically getting? You, you mentioned it's free, so you get a, a wide range, but do you have some sort of breakdown of, of industry and general public and actual installers? 
Uh, I don't have a, a breakdown uh, at hand, but I can give you my own experience. I'd say that it's uh, it's dominated by installers. There will be uh, you know literally a couple of thousand of them would attend because there's also training provided for free at this conference. So they get two days of professional development training, which they get professional development points for, which they require to to have to keep up their accreditation. Uh, so it's a really big draw card. They'll fly from Queensland just because they get free training uh, from a wonderful selection of top quality uh, trainers. Um, it's it's uh, organised by SIA, the Solar Energy Industry Association, and they, they put together a really excellent program over two days. Uh, we also get the general public who are just you know, interested in renewable energy. Uh, we get policy makers, so we get government coming to see, you know, feel the, the pulse beat of the industry. We get politicians who like to be seen with us. Well, some of them do, uh, and go for little walks through the, through the crowds, followed by a camera crew. Yeah, so it's quite a diverse mix, and we get the occasional tourist who's just walking past the Melbourne Exhibition Convention and Exhibition Centre and, and thought, what's this, and walks in. I should point out, by the way, it's really important to register online. Um, the queues can be horrendous if you try and register at the event. It's free to register, so just go to solar.org.au and you'll find it under events. Uh, that's the best way to register. Thanks for that. And, and for listeners getting this early on rather than as a podcast weeks later, just a reminder, this conference is coming up May 13 and 14. You talked about the range of of exhibits and users. Is there still room for additional exhibitors if we've got um, industry listening to this and thinking, oh, I should have got into that? By all means, give uh, uh, Joanna Zustra, our business development manager, a call and uh, she'll talk to you about what she has to offer. Um, I'm not sure what the floor plan looks like at the moment, but it's pretty packed from last time I looked. Hmm. Um, You know, it really is the place to be seen in the year if you're in the, the solar industry. Yeah, and and just back on that training you mentioned, I've um, been to a number of those training sessions and they are fantastic and the uh, dilemma really is it's which which one because there's so many good things on, they conflict. Glenn, moving on to the... It's um, always always the drama of of conferences, isn't it? (laughs) How do you split yourself into three streams? And and then to find time to do the stalls as well. (laughs) Mm. Um, Glenn, moving on to um, your work on the Australian Standards Committee, can you tell us what's going on uh, what ongoing changes there are in installation standards? Um, so what's going on with installation standards yes, for, for renewable energy? Okay. Um, so I sit on a committee technically called EL042, lovely name. Uh, mm-hmm. What we do is we look after the standards for um, standalone power systems, for grid-connected inverter systems, for photovoltaic arrays. And to that, we're adding the new battery standard. Uh, it, probably about 18 months to 24 months away, which is uh, ASNZS 5139 for those who are interested. Uh, so we're really are looking after the safety and um, best practice guides and performance uh, requirements for all the components of, uh, all the major components of uh, solar PV energy systems. So the, the big focus for the past few years has been on getting solar safe and making sure that our standards for solar PV arrays met the changing characteristics of products on the market, things like micro-inverters, DC optimizers, um, you know, much higher voltage PV arrays, uh, how to make them safe for owners, uh, for, for workers, and also for emergency services. We've been working on upgrading the inverter standard, and that's still, you know, not finished, but we should have it out this year, uh, 4777 uh, Part 2, followed by Part 1, and those two um, 
parts cover the requirements uh, for uh, inverters connected to electricity networks. So it's about making sure they're safe, making sure they don't cause problems with the network itself. Mm -hmm. Because when you inject energy into the network, uh, it's not a benign thing. It's got to be done properly not to cause power quality issues and also to ensure that we don't artificially block products that are safe but don't meet the definition. So we're looking at you know, the advent of the hybrid market, uh, mm-hmm. products that combine solar with batteries with the grid and how they can work in parallel with the grid and provide customers with ways of you know, banking their solar energy, basically not, not exporting it but using it themselves. Okay, could you just mention that new battery standard again? You you rattled off a number, of, and some people might be very interested in that. Yes, yes. Well, I'm I'm you know very excited by it because I teach batteries, and it's it's sad that we have to look back to standards which were last updated in 1992 and 1997. So the new standard uh, will be called AS slash NZS five one three nine, and it will address battery systems connected by inverters, um, uh, not necessarily only to the grid. So you might have a standalone system with batteries or a grid-connected system uh, that has an inverter as part of its design. And so it will kind of get rid of the, the, the big holes in our current standards. For instance, new technologies like lithium, like uh, aqueous iron, uh, like um, uh, uh uh, lithium sulfur even, um, new technology batteries aren't addressed in the current safety standards and are often disadvantaged by that because they're being treated in a way that's inappropriate. I mean, to give an example, because the current standard really only focuses on lead-acid uh, and nickel-cadmium batteries, uh, lead-acid batteries emit quite a bit of hydrogen, particularly flooded cells when they're charging. Now, that requires a lot of ventilation to make sure they're safe. Whereas lithium don't. They don't vent hydrogen when they're charging. But they're being disadvantaged by the fact that they're not covered in the current standard and being made to have ventilation in case of gassing. You're listening to the Beyond Zero radio show. Our guest today is Glenn Morris um, from the Australian Solar Council and his own company, SolarQuip. Glenn, the uh, process of changing these standards, can you fill us in a bit more about what's involved in that? Sure. The way Australian standards work is that there's a professional organisation, uh, SIO Global, uh, and its partner Standards Australia who publish the standards and manage the projects. But the people who actually do the writing of the standards are the stakeholders, and they're you know, nominated and, and put onto those committees for their technical uh, or stakeholder involvement. You know, For instance, in our committee, we have people from fire services, people from, from academia, the main energy safety authorities around Australia, some of the electricity distribution networks, people like myself installers, and bodies that are responsible for uh, managing and regulating the industry, like the Clean Energy Council. So through that mixture of, you know, there's often about 40 people in the room, we amazingly come to consensus extremely well. So it's it's a, a very cooperative environment. Uh, I can't speak for other committees, I've only been on this one, uh, and, and, you know, for what would seem a very challenging task to write a, a standard, uh, it works very well. That's impressive. So what improvements of installation practices have there been over the um, recent years in the growth of residential solar in Australia? Well, as I said earlier, we've had focused heavily on the, the PV uh, array standard, and that's because that's where a lot of the risks have been. The products, you know, used to be extra low voltage, you would have a, you know, a 48 volt array 
charging some batteries where you might have a very small inverter with a 100 or so volts connected to it from a PV array. But what we've seen is voltages going up and up and up to the you know, 8, 900 volt range DC. Now that's a, a very hazardous uh, potential. And so we've had to address you know, measures to make sure that that can be done safely and introduce requirements, uh, things like berthing of the PV array, earth fault detection, um, alarm in case of failure, uh, isolation and, uh, and control points, all of that, uh, and, and also specifying types of cable to be used, its labelling and identification. So as a result, you know, we've now got PV array standards that are envy of the world. I'm not just being facetious here. We actually have developed a standard that's now being adopted by the IEC, mm-hmm. International Electrotech Commission, as the model for an international standard for PV arrays. You know, I was a bit kind of surprised that this could happen. How can little Australia come up with an array standard that the world will be following? And it turns out that we've actually had a lot of expertise in solar. When our history in solar goes back um, to the 70s with uh, telecommunication sites and remote areas, and and, uh, that gave us a lot of experience. And then we had a lot of design expertise, and we still do. We still have some of the best tech uh, on the globe coming out of, you know, institutions like the University of... New South Wales. And as a result of all that, uh, we uh, and we do an awful lot of domestic installations. Uh, in 2011, we did more than any country in the world, not per capita, just full stop, total small systems, more than any other country. And so we've got a lot of expertise, but also we've benefited by the fact that we're a small country, making up a standard, as opposed to the IEC, which is like the United Nations of um, of of, uh, of a standards organisation. You've got all these countries coming to agree on something, so it's much more difficult for the IEC to to come up with a harm um, to harmonise uh, across all those different jurisdictions. Sounds like a really impressive achievement that uh, you guys have done. So, Glenn, where can people find more information online about Solar Quip and Solaris? Sure. Um, well, so the plug for me, uh, solarquip.com.au, uh, that's S-O-L-A-R-Q-U-I-P, uh, is my company. I've run it uh, since 2003, a solar quip. Uh, Solaris is uh, the, uh, the other company I'm a partner in, which is the, design, uh, the renewable energy design software um, company and services, and that's uh, solarisaustralia.net is our website. Mm-hmm. So, Glenn, what products does Solaris produce? Well, Solaris was formed uh, a few years ago to provide a software program to aid in the installation and design of solar PV systems. Uh, It actually grew out of my own company, SolarQuip, where one of my employees, Laurie at the time, um, was helping me with the the process of designing and installing systems, and uh, he was rather frustrated at what a mess it was. I had spreadsheets, I had proprietary software programs. I had pieces of paper that I was scribbling on in the calculator trying to come up with a design for a customer's quote. And uh, he said, well, Glenn, this can be done with software much, much, much more smoothly. And so he started to design the spreadsheet to end all spreadsheets. And after a short while, he said, Glenn, we need a software engineer. This is a big task. At that point, we realized actually we didn't have the expertise in-house. So we, we partnered with the Australian Solar Council, um, they're our sort of venture partner, and produced uh, a very, very high-quality tool. What we did was take what the, the Australian Solar Council already had, which was the Australian Solar Radiation Data, um, and uh, the Australian Solar Council has published this in various handbooks throughout the years, uh, and it's based on the Bureau of Meteorology uh, measurements across Australia, and then processed into um, 
you know, specific data for locations at any altitude uh, uh, azimuth and inclination. And uh, we then took that data and turned it into a software package. And so that was the the, uh, the beginnings of the software package Solar Plus. But we wanted to go a lot more. We wanted to turn it into a comprehensive solution. So it would take someone from a call centre, answering a phone call, capturing customer details, uh, qualifying the customer, being able to see their roof and Google Maps, for instance, talking to them about their installation, then passing that through the, and the workflow process through the software, which is totally web-based, um, uh, to the design team, who then can pull up either pre-designed systems or build from scratch using any components that are approved to be used in Australia and therefore make only correct decisions. That's one of the key design features. You can't design a system that's dangerous uh, or illegal. Uh, it'll only let you make right choices. And uh, that then flows through to installation where um, it can be passed on to someone on site who can record information about the installation and prove they've commissioned it, etc. Uh, and that can even be monitored live remotely uh, right through to producing a user manual. Now, that's actually a big deal. It's uh, a large document. There's a mandatory requirement of every system that there is a user manual specifying about 11 different items. And all of this is in one software package. You can run it on any computer that has a browser, on a tablet, and if you've got good eyes, even on your smartphone. Thank you, Glenn. Okay. The Solar 2015 exhibition and conference is held on May 13th and 14th at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. You can register online, and as Glenn said during the interview, it's well worth doing that because the queues are horrendous at the site. So www.solar2015.com.au You've been listening to the Beyond Zero radio show. To find out more about all we do, please visit the BIP website at www.bze.org.au Thanks, Glenn, for informing us about the Solar 2015 show, and thanks for joining us.